Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and you're listening to the Sportacast. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. That's it? Again, you have so many opportunities. <laughs> Paris's $25 million man. <laughs> well, the S in PSG stands for Sportacast. There you go. Pa- Paris Sportacast German. <laughs> there we go. All right. So what? tell me, Evan, I got to tell you, because what did I say on the last, right? The last podcast, I'm like, they're going to announce the CVC deal investment first, the $3 billion for you know whatever the, the whole shakeup was. Um, and then I'd said, what, like five minutes later, we'll announce that Barca has re-signed Lionel Messi. And I was right and I was wrong <laughs> because it did come out shortly thereafter that Barca has agreed to a deal with the superstar and he's going back to the club, right? So, but all of a sudden, was it a day later? Was it a big, day? All of a butt. sudden. <laughs> yeah, big, but only he isn't. And because of all the financial regulation, uh, Messi is gone. He's not with that. I mean, did you watch the press conference, by the way? Did you see any highlights? I saw some of the highlights. It was it was on at what, four in the morning in the in the US. I did not I did not wake up that early to hear uh Barcelona and La Liga uh executives bicker about the financial status of of the league and the clubs. Um, but it's a it's a bad situation here, Scott, for for Barcelona. I mean, we, we knew they release annuals, annual financials, we knew things were bad. But I think it takes something like this, letting a multi-generational player, one of the most popular, best, uh, wealthiest uh, soccer players or athletes writ large in the, in the world, it takes having to let him walk when he clearly wanted to stay and was even willing to take a pay cut to do so. It takes something like this to, I think, really underscore and hammer home for, for fans just how bad the financial situation is in Barcelona right now. Leave it to you to use, utilize the word underscore. Uh, our friend Tarek Panja at the New York Times on Twitter had a good line. He's like, is somebody going to ask Messi what was the absolute minimum he was willing to take to make it work and stay? Like, I'm not even sure like 10 bucks a year would have made it work. Um, but under the terms of his deal, what were they like? 105% of revenue if they had kept him right. And now they're like 95% or 90, 95%. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I wrote down the numbers here. If you if you look at salaries as a function of of revenue, um, you ideally want to be around 70%, 70% of your, of your revenue as a, as a club the size of Barcelona's going straight back to players. Right now, without Messi, Barcelona's at 90%. 
way more than 70. If they had been able to resign Messi, it would have been 110% of revenue. Which is you unsustainable. Don't, you, you, you don't, don't need, need to a degree be a business in accounting. Yes, <laughs> exactly. To know that if you're if you're paying out 110% of what you're bringing in, uh, that's a bad situation. And and the debt number, you know, Barcelona has, has over a billion euros worth of debt. I think Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid are also kind of right up around that number. Um, those are, you know, numbers that get ignored a lot, I think, in the, in the media and even sometimes maybe by the by executives themselves. Um, but that also just shows just kind of the financial the, the, the financial troubles. And, and and we talked about this at the last podcast, Scott. The the economics for clubs like Barcelona, they leave no margin for error. They're making a ton of money in revenue. They're spending almost all that money right back out in player salaries. Yeah, and COVID was and more than an error. COVID, COVID was, was a once in a lifetime, e. literally slamming the exactly. tax shut. Exactly. So Barcelona and Real Madrid seems like it is also in a similar position here where they have mounting debt. They, you know, the financials are not so great in the past year and fan bases that are used to having one of the best soccer teams in the world that is willing to spend to attract the biggest talent in the world might need to go through a little bit, a couple year course correction to get things back on back on track. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you know the answer or not. But so you said percentage of revenue to salaries. 90%, let's the bottom 100, whatever. Is it outside of the realm of possibility, however, that, I mean, that's just, that's just your, your revenue versus your salaries, that you could find new revenue streams. I mean, as we were looking at Super League, I mean, this is why those discussions are happening. This is why Real and Barca are against the CVC deal. They feel perhaps they can do better on their own. Yeah, I mean, am I, I think am I right with that? I think you, yeah, there are certainly ways, and, and I don't know if you're asking about this directly, but we talked a bit recently about the CVC deal, right? Which is another way of potentially a way for La Liga teams, including Barcelona and Real Madrid, to get an influx of capital right now to to, to boost their revenue uh, in, in in the short term um, just by getting that cash infusion. Uh, I think there's certainly an, an argument for that, but but everyone that that I talked to made it clear that that Barcelona is kind of past that point. I mean, I'll give you the, the quote that doctors. Stefan Shemansky, who who co-wrote Soccernomics, told me, at the moment, the club is broke and playing messy salary is just not sustainable. This might be the only way to slave the club financially. Um, and this is, we should note, and, and one of the things Stefan told me, this is fairly common in, in in European soccer. Teams go through boom and busts all the time. Teams go bankrupt all the time. The example that he mentioned in 2002, I think it was, Leicester City went bankrupt. 12 years later, they won the, the, the biggest club prize in European soccer, uh, the EPL title. So I'm not saying that Barcelona is going to go bankrupt, but but there is a kind of a history of kind of big ebbs and flows. You see it in Italian soccer all the time as well, where teams kind of fly really close to the sun for a while. Something happens, uh, it becomes unsustainable, they crash back to earth and then slowly rebuild their brand again. Now, I don't want a slew of emails and tweets from around the globe. I want to make sure our nomenclature was there right. You said the biggest club prize in European soccer. Would that not be the Champions League? Uh, albeit you want to win the EPL, but Leicester did not win the Champions League. I would no, think that I'll, I'll would defend, be... I If you ask in English clubs, I think they would tell you they'd rather win, they'd rather win the, the EPL, EPL title the than... League. Yeah, and you see that in the way they prioritize their Nova rosters. Williams. I'm, all right, I don't do this the Twitter one I polls. I, 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 I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just want to make sure we're you know, that nobody's going, oh, bloody hell, I don't know what he's talking about. You know, like, okay. I think clubs have answered that question in the way that they use their rosters, in that they are clearly prioritizing their weekend EPL games over their midweek 
week Champions League game when we get to the point in the season when they're happening simultaneously. Yeah, what's the ROI of winning the Champions League versus getting to the EPL title? I, I feel like now for we should have a, like an ad hoc emergency call with Steve Harwood. <laughs> I actually think in, in the financials answer, it actually might be more valuable to win the Champions League. But I think clubs are still pushing more, especially in England. They would rather win their league title than they would win the the continental club championship. Gotcha. Over, under, on minutes after Steve or second Steve hears that reference and calls either you or I or both or texts. Like <laughs> well, I'm fascinated because he, he will, if he's on his he bicycle, will know the answers for sure. Um, but I feel this one I feel fairly confident in. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So now I, I thought we were going to start maybe with the Olympics, but you know what? Messi is such big news and global icon that we had to start there. But let's move on to the Olympics. All right. So Tokyo has come to a close. You would have to say from the organizing committee, from the IOC perspective, a whopping success simply because they happened, they're over, and NBC had to cut the check. Like, we're done. <laughs> like, they made it happen. Uh, no, no matter what sideline, whatever, whatever would happen, they got the games in. That's what they needed to do to make sure they, they protected the broadcast revenue. Yeah. I think if you're the IOC, this is going into this, these games, this was best case scenario. You did a lot of testing. Uh, there were a few positives, a few athletes even, but nowhere near the amount that I think a lot of people may have been expecting. You got all the events in on time as scheduled. Um, and you wrapped up exactly the day that you said you would. I think there are people within the, the, the international Olympic movement who might feel a little differently uh, in the NBC. If you look at the ratings, Ratings were not great. Um, I don't know what they were projecting for. There, there are some some make goods that are going to have to happen or have already happened as a result of that. Um, but you're right. The if if a number one priority was let's get these games off as scheduled, let's get them broadcast around the world, and ideally do so in a way that has minimal amount of COVID kicked out of the bubble, athletes can't compete. That'd be great, and that's exactly what the IOC got. Yeah, only a few of those, so that's got to be a whopping success. But now. Help me out because you wrote the story. Let's look forward. Normally, I have a two-year respite before I start talking about, okay, what's next? But Beijing 2022 is six months away. What is the appetite? Because we mainly care about the business of all this. What is the appetite from a corporate perspective, from a selling tickets perspective? Am I going there perspective, filled stadiums perspective, COVID perspective? That's a lot of perspective I'm asking you to provide for me, Evan, but you did write the story. So give me your top line perspective that I need to know about Beijing 2022, six months out. The simple answer, Scott, is that you're asking a lot of good questions and everybody in the Olympic movement is asking those questions too. Tickets have not been printed yet or distributed. They're not even on sale right now uh, for fans who want to go to Beijing the impression I get from talking to a lot of people, at least within the U.S. side of the Olympic movement, nobody expects fans, foreign fans, to be allowed into China uh, for these games. The, the The Chinese border remains largely closed. Um, it's unclear if that's going to open. It sounds like the expectation is that the Chinese, the Beijing host committee is going to say at some point relatively soon, look, because of COVID, things are a little complicated. Uh, we don't want people coming into the country right now. The, Which, the, but now we have a template for that. We have a template. Yes, for that. we have a template for that. I think the subtext to that is that a lot of people feel as though that could be a face saving measure for the fact that there are a lot of governments and there are a lot of people around the world that do not think that these games should be happening 
because of what's happening in, in, in the, in the Xinjiang region of China, uh, with its treatment of Uyghurs, which the U S government and many other governments have called a genocide. Uh, so there's going to continue to be a lot of political pressure. There's going to be a lot of activist pressure here in the U S and elsewhere for companies, for athletes, for sponsors, for media companies, all of whom that are involved in these games. And that's going to become a tricky, thorny subject. Um, okay. But the truth is that the, the Beijing games are going to look, I think, a lot like the, the Tokyo games. I think there's going to be fans there because I think Chinese uh, people in China are going to be allowed to go to the games. And I think you'll see kind of packed stadiums in that regard. Um, but in terms of sponsors going on the ground, in terms of huge political delegations going, we're not going to see that in Beijing, just like we didn't see that in Tokyo. How many years ago was it? And I swear to you, I don't know the right answer. How many years ago was it where I was waking up early to see Michael Phelps swim at like 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning so it could be broadcast in prime time? When you were on the, the ground in Beijing? Yeah, when was I was 2008. How long ago yeah. was that? Okay, and wasn't that <laughs> supposed to represent sort of China's coming out party to the rest of the world? And here we are again, and I'm hearing the same arguments that we heard back then. Yeah, this is exactly the frustration that a lot of people have is that in 2008, you're right, the the, the Chinese Summer Olympics in Beijing were supposed to be China's you know, entrance into kind of to being a responsible global citizen. Um, and you're right, you can't, it's hard to make that argument twice. And there are a lot of people, we saw congressional hearings here in the US last month, where five of the IOC's top partners, all of them US-based companies, Intel, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, Airbnb, I can't remember the fifth one. They all came to to Washington uh, to talk about the the way that they think about their sponsorships vis-a-vis what's happening uh, in in Eastern China or in Western China right now. Um, and those questions are going to continue to come. And 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 just as a quick history aside. Nobody thought that Beijing was going to get the summer game or to get the winter games for 2022. The expectation was that it was going to happen in Oslo. Norway had put together a big bid that kind of fell apart at the last minute. And then you ended up with a, an IOC vote between Beijing, which doesn't really get much snow, and Almaty, Kazakhstan, which is the biggest city in Kazakhstan. But their bid had all sorts of problems. And it was a close vote. It was a 40, 44 to 40 vote to give it to Beijing as opposed to, Kaz- to, as opposed to Kazakhstan. So again, this was Beijing was a long shot from the start that because of other circumstances ended up getting the games and then what's happening with the Uyghurs kind of piled onto what's happening with COVID and as a result I think this is going to be a harder games commercially than even the Tokyo were and the Tokyo games were and that's saying a lot. I'm really interested to see when we do put out those phone calls to your CEOs and CMOs of all these partners that pay tons of money to associate themselves with the rings and the games how do they intend to accomplish ROI on this? It's, it's going to be very, very difficult. But I will say, if we look past Beijing and we're looking, you know, then you're looking at, at France and Italy and the US, they must be salivating. The CMOs and the CEOs of these companies must be like, just get me to Paris. Please get me to Paris where I can figure out ways to monetize this massive investment that I've been forced to make. If the Paris games in 2024, summer games can go off without any major hitch, and that's obviously a big if because who saw COVID coming. But if that can happen, no question. The Paris games are going to be a massive commercial bonanza. I think kind of in a, in the same way that I think you and I would agree the, the Super Bowl in L.A., 
in six or seven months is going to be a huge commercial bonanza as well. Um, ideally, because after you take a year off or in the Olympic movement's case, five years off, uh, you end up with a lot of people that have money they want to spend. They have partnerships they want to get return on and they're running out of opportunities to do that. I think no question. The, the, the Paris games have some concerns, particularly locally, about whether people in Paris want them to happen. I think financially they're on fairly solid footing in, in as much as you can be this early. But yes, there are people who thought that was going to be Tokyo was going to be the first kind of big games in a city that everyone wants to go to that are going to be, you know, go off without a hitch, without any infrastructure problems. We didn't get that. We're obviously not getting that in Beijing. Paris is the next opportunity. And to that point, Scott, the the, the LA28 um, and Team USA are essentially working together right now to sell sponsorships for the next four Olympics. So for the, for the, for the eight years and the four games leading up to LA 2028, they're selling as one entity. It's a joint venture. They set a two and a half billion dollar corporate sponsorship target uh, for that eight years. And the fact that things with Beijing haven't been maybe as great as people expected they would be, from what I'm told, the target is unchanged. They still feel like because Paris and LA were kind of the two crown jewels in that eight year stretch, that as long as those two games Games go off well. The fact that Beijing is kind of shrouded in both political and pandemic uncertainty doesn't actually affect the long-term numbers there. I love it. Political and uh, pandemic uncertainty. Well, well put, <laughs> Novi Williams. And you, I got to say, you gave me some serious there. I, I'm quite cognizant that the Hall of Fame game was just played and that NFL football is just around the corner. But when you said, oh, the Super Bowl in LA in X number of months, I'm like, <laughs> I have so much to do before that happens, and so much to do for that week ahead or two weeks ahead that I'm like, oh my, well, that was like a gut punch because it was just like, wow, yeah, the NFL is starting, right? We, we have to start really turning attention to the NFL and that Super Bowl. There's but a whole season now, between then and now, Scott. <laughs> yeah, a whole, a whole season that goes very quickly. For now, though, in the news, DraftKings, Tillman Fertitta, Again, your beat. I love when I can just really turn the, the floor over to you, and you may need to gargle with some salt water after this one because you know you did a lot of the talking. But tell me what DraftKings did. It's a stock deal, one point five six billion. Why is Tillman Fertitta not taking cash? People usually like cash, but he said, "No, no, 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 no. I'm okay. I want stock in DraftKings moving forward." Yeah, so DraftKings is is buying, is acquiring the Golden Nugget, their online gaming uh, business, which was spun off from Golden Nugget corporate uh, a few months ago. And as you said, stock price, it's all stock. It's a, it's a $1.6 billion deal. Uh, and it is essentially a play into iGaming. As much as we talk about sports gaming, sports gambling on this show, sports gambling really appeals to a relatively small portion of the population relative to casino games. But you are getting a $5 million or 5 million customer base. Uh, exactly. You can, you can and, convert and them to bet on those rockets. For sure. And DraftKings and FanDuel and, and a lot of other companies that do sports betting, I think are kind of realizing over the past few weeks, that a few months and, and even the past year, that th there's a real opportunity in iGaming. That as states across the country legalize sports betting, some of them are also legalizing online casino games like Blackjack. And that, again, as much as people like to gamble on sports, there might be higher margins and also a wider customer base for iGaming. And what Golden Nugget Online Gaming does so well is iGaming. So DraftKings is 
paying $1.6 billion for what you said. It's a, it's a massive customer base. A lot of those customers, as, 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 J, as DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins said on Monday, a lot of those customers are not sports fans. They're a different demographic than what DraftKings is attracting right now. They're new customers. And DraftKings has its own tech stack because of its SP tech transition. So it's going to save a lot, save a lot of money for Golden Nugget on just the tech and the back end uh, for a lot of these things. There's a lot of synergies there for the two of them. And and you mentioned Tillman Fertitta, who owns the Rockets as well. There was an investor call on Monday morning to announce this deal. And Tillman was gushing about the idea that he was going to have DraftKings stock. It was clear, he said from the beginning, he told Jason Robbins, look, if we get a deal done, I don't want, I don't want to be bought out. I want this to be a stock transaction because I believe in this industry. And he really believes, he, he said it himself, Golden Nugget was never going to be a monster player in sports betting by itself. But if you kind of merge the Golden Nugget online gaming with a much bigger sports brand in DraftKings, he thinks there's a lot of synergy and a lot of opportunity there. So he is certainly excited to be staying on as a DraftKings shareholder. He's one of the biggest shareholders now in DraftKings and he's joining the board. So there's going to be increased relationships there as well. I love living in New Jersey and every now and then, whenever I'm watching a sporting event, I get my Tillman Fertitta Golden Nugget iGaming commercials. You know, hey, Johnny won $1,000 playing blackjack. I love he's my- He's reluctant t- to give over the cash. I think that's yeah, yeah, I love <laughs> my Tillman Fertitta commercials. All right, we got a couple of minutes and there's always things we'd like to touch on. UFC selling NFTs, but that wasn't part of the story. The big part of the story here, Eben, is that the fighters are getting a greater percentage of the revenue. That's the story here that that people really want to talk about. I don't know if you caught this, Scott, a week and a half ago, but there's a UFC fighter named Cheyenne Buys who um, they give away a fight. $50,000 bonus. She was tearful because it changed her life. Yeah, exactly. They give away this fight of the night bonus for what they think is the most compelling fight. She won that bonus. And when she was told, she essentially broke into tears because of how important that was. And one of the things she said was she's been broke her whole life because of the sport. Because of the sport, yeah. And it it, it reignited um, what is a common discussion point around UFC, which is that they do not compensate fighters percentage-wise of overall revenue anywhere close to what the big leagues do, like the NFL, or the NBA, and the NHL, which you know is around 50%. Around 50-50, yeah. yeah. I think the UFC is around 20% right now. Um, but one of the things UFC is doing is it's increasing the licensing share uh, for things like NFTs. Um, so yes, you're right. They have a new NFT deal with Panini. Uh, part of that deal, under merchandise, the, the fighters share about 30% of the UFC's cut of licensing. Under NFTs, fighters are going to share 50% of the UFC cut of licensing. Right now, Scott, this is not a ton of money. Uh, UFC distributed across all of its licensing about a million dollars to its athletes last year. But this is at least a signal that UFC is trying to do more, provide more revenue opportunities for fighters beyond just what they get paid to, to compete on a Saturday night. All right. And tell me why I should care that the University of Miami quarterback, Derek King, signed a deal with the Florida Panthers. It's all NIL related. So it's a big league team signing a college player to do things with the team. Why should I care about that as, as opposed to just this player signing with Nike? Story broken by our colleague, Corey Left. Shout out John Wall Street. Uh, this is just an interesting deal, I think, Scott. I think the when people thought about NIL deals when they, when they started and hit the college market, you were thinking about maybe online influencer stuff or local car dealerships, things of that nature. I don't think a lot of people thought the local NHL team was going to be sponsoring the local Heisman Trophy candidate. Uh, but here we are. And, and, and one of the interesting things I think about this deal is that Eric King is going to get essentially get commission 
on this deal from from the Panthers. The, the more that he drives, and I don't know if this is specifically for merchandise, which they're doing with him, or if it's ticket sales as well, um, but the more business he drives for the Panthers, the more he's going to share in that, which I think is a smart way of just also motivating him <laughs> to, to, to care a bit about this partnership. Yeah. Um, but the Panthers are going to do this also with a with another South Florida athlete, probably a, a woman, it sounds like, a female. Um, but yes, I think that this is an interesting kind of new type of NIL deal where local professional teams in a totally different sport than the one that this college athlete plays are kind of utilizing the fact that at least in South Florida right now, Derek King is a pretty popular and probably fairly influential human being. I think they need to throw rats on the ice again. That, that's, that, that's, that was big for, for Florida for a little while there. That that's name the Panthers, but throw the, the plastic rats. Can you on get the a commission a on that idea? Uh, I'll, I'll ask Sean Thornton. I mean, you know, but you know, he also chokes people out for his hobby of, you know, MMA stuff. So, you know, I, I don't want to push too hard, but I will ask. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Cora Veltman, our social media editor, loves when I remind you that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will become the Sportico Podcast Network. <laughs>